0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Weird Horizon. We're starting on a new topic today, and we're going to be kicking off with a history lesson. I will then, in the coming weeks, be bringing on some friends to talk about their experiences with the topic. I know I've talked about it a little bit before, but I really like this kind of structure, as I feel it allows me to cover the topics in the depth that I think they deserve. But really doesn't divorce it from the human side of the history. As again, this is a topic about people. This is about how people deal with life. And particularly how people deal with the unpredictable. And I know it's something that I have a lot of feelings about. And I'm excited to get started. And to start to hear other people's experiences with it too. As I said, today is... A bit of a history lesson, so it's just me today, so get comfy wherever you can, and I hope you enjoy the honestly much longer and much more complicated than I was expecting history of Western astrology. A quick shout out before we get fully into it, I just want to say a huge thank you to Nix from Sounds Creepy Podcast. I mentioned a little while ago I was thinking of converting some of the podcast content to videos for YouTube. So just sort of re-knitting them into really long-form videos because I think that's something I would enjoy and I wanted if other people would enjoy it. But I just had no knowledge about video editing, specifically on an iPad, which is what I do most of this podcast on. And they reached out and gave me some really great advice, which I've since followed up on and has saved me so much time. And honestly, they're so cool. It's so cool to even have people like this message me. And it's such a nice thing to do and they're so generous with their time and their podcast is excellent. So if you've got a bit of free time definitely definitely check it out and I'm so grateful. So thank you again. Sounds creepy podcast. Thank you Nix. So intro. So it is the year 2022 and I have just downloaded for free my natal astrology birth chart and with the input of just a few pieces of information such as the date, the place and the time of my birth. Complex calculations calculate the positions of the planets and constellations at the time of my birth. Adjusting for daylight savings time, where applicable, automatically, based on the information that I give. Information that could previously only have been gathered by craning your neck upwards to the heavens at the exact time of birth and recording the patterns there. With a click of a button, this information is presented to me. Behind the scenes calculations, which would have required not just mathematical but astronomical knowledge, as well as specific reference materials and a prohibitive amount of time invested, are computed in less time than it takes to reload the page. What would previously have taken study and time is presented and interpreted with my signs and their houses already read for me, giving guidance based on the conjunction between different planets, their relative position, and the qualities associated with their astrological signs and the houses they occupy. Incredibly specific in some ways, yet vague in others. She may limit herself unknowingly through mental overstimulation, or by overdoing logic at the expense of intuition. Or, it is only when you get into touch with your heart and discover your true desires that you realise that sensations are merely sensations, not deeply satisfying or fulfilling. It feels as though I have been presented with a map of my life written out by the stars and their relationship to the specific world I was born into cyclical, predictable, by and large the same calculations that have been done by hand for thousands of years. But the real question is, if it's all written out for me, if the aspects of the stars and planets inspire in me a certain blend of qualities and challenges, is there anything I can do about it? Is there anything that can be done from knowing the route the road takes if you can't step off the path? Or will knowledge allow me to change something? Will the universe care? You're listening to Weird Horizon, and today we're looking at the history of celestial divination, astrology. Since childhood, I think I've always had a dim awareness of astrology. When I was in school, it was reasonably expected that you would know your specific sign of the zodiac or your sun sign. And every magazine, because magazines were a big deal when I was in school, every magazine had a daily or weekly horoscope section from which you could draw guidance for the coming days. If you knew your zodiac sign or your sun sign, all you had to do was look it up on this little grid and get your guidance straight to you. Now, nowadays, these have, of course, moved online, And in many ways, it become more specific because they can take into account so much more information and serve you up this specific horoscope according to the information you give it. But in many ways, not at all. So in the day I'm writing this research, horoscope.com, which is the first result if I put in online horoscope because I'm lazy, horoscope.com says of today, this is an ideal day to take a look at your financial situation. Now, this is a good piece of advice, no doubt, but as is a common criticism of horoscopes, it is not particularly tailored to me. So if I were a Taurus, for example, my advice would have been to read some books and meet some new people. But I'm a Capricorn. But still, it is hard to say anywhere out there would not benefit from either of these pointers. They are geared towards general betterment and spiritual peace, fostering a wiser outlook and encouraging the individual to take a step back in a way and analyze their own actions and feelings. It is not hard, therefore, to see why some people swear by their horoscopes. In the same way, inspirational short form content is massively popular today. Think sort of quote graphics. Instagram stories, and sort of self-improvement infographics that we see every single day. None of this is new. But the 12 signs as we know them today carve up the heavens into even sections, and by extension, the year. By simply knowing your date of birth, it is possible to look up your sign and access horoscopes from any variety of sources, coming from astrologers, analysing and interpreting the changing celestial situation and translating what it means for us on earth. To greatly simplify a massive subject into its simplest form, sun sign signification is ubiquitous enough it can be printed in papers, calendars, into books, but many, or most even, are unaware of the complicated journey it takes us to get to this point in time. Or, how much of the sort of craft and history of astrology is ignored by just taking the sun sign signification and assuming that is all there is to know about astrology? So, let's dig a little bit into it. So, astrology as it stands today is viewed as a form of pseudoscience, but it has a long history of over 2,400 years. In terms of this history of pseudoscience, it joins the rank of things such as alchemy. A lot of parapsychological themes as well. Phrenology, for example, is a popular pseudoscience. Now, these are things that had a claim to be scientific and in many cases were treated as a sort of scientific discipline at some point, but then have since sort of been declassified. Anyway, so the basic claim is that the movement and relative position of the planets has an effect on human affairs. If you know anything about... Hermeticism is similar to this idea that power filters down from God and that celestial bodies get their power from God and we get their power from them if we know how to read it. There is also a bit of overlap with sympathetic magic with the shape of the astrological signs said to imply something of the characters of those born under them So up until very recently, it was studied alongside astronomy, as well as alchemy and early forms of medicine, which we now argue are more similar to witchcraft than they are modern medicine. But this delineation between hard science and pseudoscience is fairly recent, especially when it comes to astrology, and it's kind of one of those things that's always changing. There may, in fact, be some things today that we... We study as hard science that will later be declassified as pseudoscience, but I thought I'd just mention that. So there are many different kinds of astrology as well. There are Hindu, Chinese, Maya, and Western astrology. These are the ones that I know of. Western astrology is one of the oldest astrological systems still in use, and it can trace its roots all the way back to the 19th to 17th century BCE, mesopotamia so that is that 2400 year history that we were talking about now there are various complicated systems from multiple separate cultures with their own methods of predicting terrestrial events based on the movements of the stars and planets and interestingly with astrology there are many times where these systems sort of meet and inform on each other and this merging gives us multiple modern forms of astrology, but they all differ in some ways from their historical roots. Now, the word astrology comes from the Latin astrologia, deriving from the Greek in turn, meaning astro for star, logia for study of, and so study of stars. And it stems from the beginning to differentiate between astronomy and astrology. So The actual term itself stems from this sort of start of branching between astronomy and astrology, because as mentioned, at that point, they were studied interchangeably. They weren't two subjects that were studied at the same time. They were part of the same subject. So it was later used to specify star divination. So Astronomia, star divination, was used for the specific study of the stars. So that is very similar to sort of where we sit today. And very quickly, because you'll need to know this as well, so there are four traditional branches of astrology, all of which we're going to talk about today. So there is mundane astrology, natal astrology, horary astrology, and electional astrology. So as you can see, astrology kind of went alongside a lot of contemporary thought of the time. These ideas of cutting-edge sort of scientific topics later being declassified as pseudoscience and this interdisciplinary approach is something that we we see a lot if we try and trace back these topics further back in time. A lot of scientists at the time are studying in a very interdisciplinary approach because many of these topics inform on each other and as we can see there is an overlap with sort of magical history as well, as we mentioned, things like hermeticism and the sort of philosophical and spiritual uh, system of thought that that represents. And as we said, they overlap with sympathetic magic. There are certain frameworks by which people interact with the world around them, specifically the the magical world or sort of unexplained world. And I would just like to say that although these forms of astrology, as you will see, come from various sort of places in the world there are certain sort of ideas that they reflect on that are not unique to astrology so i just wanted to sort of put it in very briefly in the context of witchcraft and magic and just generally extra scientific thought of the time the timeline of astrology dates back to at least the second millennium bce based on the calendar forms used to predict the seasons and interpret celestial cycles as communications from God. So there is speculation that it may be even older, that people have been observing the cycles of the planets through the, through the sky and drawing wisdom from them or interpreting them as communications. However, of course, there's not a lot of surviving evidence for this. Things that do survive, things that we do have very, very long records for, are people keeping calendars of some kind, keeping track of not just the cycles of the sun, but the cycles of the moon, so the lunar cycle. We have extensive evidence for this going back as far as people do, basically. But obviously an issue we have in terms of interpreting this as an astrological Practice is that we don't have evidence of the interpretation of this. We have evidence of the measurement, but not the interpretation. And therefore, a doubt of whether it was interpreted in this way. Just because you're tracking the movement of the stars does not mean that you are drawing some sort of spiritual guidance from it. As it is nowadays, astrology has primarily been an oral tradition for as long as it has been a tradition. It's only much later on in astrology's timeline that we start to find preserved natal charts, birth charts. And later, even from that, we start to find evidence of the interpretations of these charts. As up until this point, mostly they were done orally. You would go to someone studying astrology. They would compute your chart for you and they would interpret it and explain it to you as part of the conversation. I would like to say at this point something that has been absolutely indispensable to learning about the history of astrology is the history of Western astrology in overview by Chris Brennan on YouTube as part of the astrology podcast. This guy manages to translate an awful lot of very interesting information into a very digestible format and this video that I watched multiple times to research this is close to three hours long, and it does not feel it. This is a feature-length overview of Western astrology, so if you want a lot more detail than what I'm going to go into, I highly recommend it, and I'll put reference to it in the notes. So there is evidence in even the oldest cave art and bone carvings of attempts to track lunar cycles as potentially a timekeeping device or a way of tracking seasonal changes, or as some may have suggested, a way of tracking the menstrual cycle as an early form of... Birth control. But there is no evidence that these recordings were used to define anything about the future or the present. As mentioned, we just know that there are recordings, but we don't really know what was done with this information. It's all speculation. That's why we say the history of astrology really starts with Babylonian or Mesopotamian astrology. So, Babylonian or Mesopotamian astrology was the first organized system of astrology dating back to the 2nd millennium BC astrology at this time was practiced by priests as a way of divining the intentions of god the agreed upon beginning of scholarly celestial divination therefore begins in old babylonian texts circa sort of 1800 BCE and it kind of goes as such this is the way that this system worked sky and earth together produce omens so think of it as a sort of, if this happens and this happens. It was a very unbiased way of looking at it. It was just like cause and effect. If This happens and this happens. But the way that the celestial events were interpreted, obviously, was personal and done by these priests. So it was practiced by priests to divine what that meant about the world below. Now, in this system, things like an eclipse may serve as an omen for a king or a ruler dying. This figurative idea of light being sort of snuffed out or something going into shadow, the sort of transition period from light to dark, all of these might be interpreted as, as we said, like a ruler dying, plague, famine, things like this. It was not the only tool that these priests used. One of the other main tools that the babylonian priests use were liver models this is where signs on the liver of a sacrificial animal were said to correspond to messages from the gods directly to the king so as i mentioned i keep saying the king it was not practiced by regular people there was no need for it as this was transmitting messages from the gods to god's representative on earth the king and by extension what this means about the kingdom as a whole. But it wasn't really about the individual unless you happen to be the king. (laughs) As mentioned, these were messages purely from the gods to the king, so there was really no individual wisdom to be gotten from a practice of astrology for the individual. It did not exist as a practice. So Babylonian astrology was based on omen divination, so So the tablets from the time compile thousands of cuneiform celestial omens, but the texts reference that this is an oral tradition. So there was a sort of lookup for what the omens may mean, but the interpretation and the translating of this information was an oral tradition. Astrology of this time was what's known as mundane astrology. So it was state-supported, and mundane meaning it referenced only political matters and crops and such as that, and things that affected the entire population. So as much as they concerned affairs of state, their symbols referenced things like the best time to plant and harvest crops, the best time to hunt, and generally the sort of structure needed to preserve life in an organised manner. And knowledge of this and astronomy, as we know it, were roughly evolving alongside each other. So there was no strict delineation between the two, as they both seemed to have direct impact on the lives of the people. So in the same way that knowing where the sun is in the celestial cycle will tell you things about the seasons and have a very real effect on the crops, as as we said, a sort of unbiased scientific effect, it was thought that certain signs in the universe would have a direct impact on the king in the kingdom as an unbiased scientific effect that we were just measuring. Now, there are at one point 10 different colleges giving their readings to the king alone, and with their slightly differing interpretations of them. And this allowed the king to sort of take on this information and use it to inform his choices and actions. Now, at some point during this Honestly, massive period of time, there was a standardization of the zodiac to include the 12 signs as we know of. Now, but to sort of split up the area of the night sky into even segments, as before it was based on the relative sizes of the constellations, so it it varied wildly according to how big the constellations were in the sky. So there was already a start of some standardization to this and by the fourth century bc mathematics had improved to the point it was possible to not only read the position of the stars as they currently stand but to calculate the future positions of the planets and the stars as but up until this point it was mainly practiced through observation so paying a priest to observe and sort of transmute the position of the stars into actionable information. And the planets were thought to represent particular gods at this point, so they had sort of a value attributed to them, which is again something we see codified later on. But bad omens corresponded to bad omens from those particular gods. So it wasn't necessarily as good and bad in that certain signs are thought to be positive or some of them are thought to be negative. Um, it was just that if it was to do with this particular consolation, then it was a omen from that particular god, whether good or bad. And as such, efforts were made and tailored to, to appease that god. And in appeasing these gods, we see evidence of the use of substitutes to form as a target for the behavior which was viewed as certain to come about. So as we mentioned, it was this was like a scientific cause and effect relationship that was being interpreted here. So they figured this is going to happen. But if we can substitute instead of our king or our kingdom, something else to sort of form as a magnet for this effect, we might be able to circumvent it. And again, as we mentioned, there's a little bit of an overlap to later ideas such as sympathetic magic. The idea that things that sort of look or act similarly can can sort of serve in each other's places in very certain situations. So, for example, this is a translation from a tablet held currently in the state archive of Assyria. So it says, In the beginning of the year, a flood will come and break the dikes. When the moon has made the eclipse the king my lord should write to me as a substitute for the king i will cut through a dike here in babylonia in the middle of the night no one will know about it so in the similar way to the sympathetic magic we may be familiar with from western magic history however it was viewed as a purely mechanical relationship between the terrestrial and the celestial and a relationship that we could be viewed as objectively sound and verifiable as, as we said, it was intrinsically mixed with other scientific ideas, such as the progression of the seasons. This was a provable cyclical movement that had very real effects on day-to-day life, as we see it on Earth. So this relationship was very sound, it seemed. There wasn't really a whole lot of mysticism or spiritualism to it. It was a very scientific relationship. However, there had at this point been, since the 6th century BC or so, the gradual emergence of horoscopic astrology, or the development of what we would call natal astrology, i.e. astrology linked to the specific time of birth. And it was around this time that astrology was decentralised. And it was also at this point that the charts were developed that allowed one to look up the position of the stars on a person's date of birth. Something that was, as we said, until this point, impossible. But still, birth charts at this point just record the position of the planets at the time of your birth. The interpretation of this information was still done orally, so we don't have an awful lot of surviving evidence of how these charts were interpreted, unfortunately. So we don't really get to see the beginning of this natal astrology evolving alongside mundane astrology, unfortunately. Not in sort of Babylonian astrology anyway. So, this is where we really start to see quite a lot of overlap between different kinds of astrology. So, Egyptian astrology was also developing at this time and it focused on fixed stars and their position in the skies called decans. And it was used to tell time and time religious rituals. So it was a little bit more sort of focused on spiritual side and it was focused on the 24 hour cycle. So identifying the rising and falling of certain stars rather than the constellations, which were rising at birth. But the next sort of big period of astrology is Hellenistic astrology. And this is where things like birth charts, natal charts, really start to kick off and there's a sort of transition between Babylonian astrology which we've been learning about and this new form of astrology called Hellenistic astrology. Hellenistic astrology didn't just borrow from Babylonian astrology but it also borrowed from Egyptian astrology. So when Egypt was conquered by the Persians in 525 BC The Persians, who who had in turn taken control of the Middle East after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, they brought with them astrology. So at this point, in effect, Egypt and Mesopotamia were under the control of the Greeks, Greek being the lingua franca of the time. So the Hellenistic period is taking all of these conquered forms of astrology and sort of putting them together. In this way, certain ideas from Egyptian astrology were sort of merged with Babylonian astrology in some very interesting ways. In Egyptian astrology, there was this idea of the Deccans, as we mentioned. Things like the rising Deccan were attributed to certain topics such as childhood, death, etc., and this sort of formed the prototype which would later form the Twelve Houses, which is something we haven't talked about yet, but just keep that in mind. So after the occupation of Alexander the Great, when Egypt came under Hellenistic rule, and the city of Alexandria is founded between the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, zodiac signs start to appear in Egyptian temples, being merged with these Egyptian decans. The one focuses on the cycle of the sun through the sky one focuses on the cycles of celestial bodies and other planets. So the signs and the houses, the aspects and their meanings, etc., all kind of emerge at this point and merge as a meeting point between Egyptian astrology and Babylonian astrology. So the rising Deccan at the moment of birth starts to be paid attention to as well. And it was treated as important to the individuals who were born at this time. So this is the beginning of the whole sign house system there is also the introduction at this time of something called the rulership scheme or the thema mundi which assigns the signs to the planets and gives them their characteristics as well as the evolution of things like day and night schemes and attributing gender to the signs so there is an absolute explosion in all the different forms and all the different things that can be associated with particular planets and signs and their position in the sky there is an absolute explosion in all of this which comes from this conglomeration between Babylonian and Egyptian astrology there is also this idea of attributing the four classical elements to the signs of the zodiac so the signs at this point are not only just representing particular gods, but they also have their own sort of value attributions as well. They have a gender associated with them and the value associations that come with that. They have a classical element associated with them, which again gives so much more information for those who are interpreting the movement of the planets through the sky. There is just an awful lot more thematic elements to work with there so there's a huge explosion in what you can read from this and a lot of it is what we take with us today so i think a lot of it is why some natal charts can seem to be overwhelming with so much information because there are so many ways that you can read the intersections between all of these different values but just give it a brief overview in case you don't know because i didn't either before i started this so the sig- signification of the 12 houses The houses represent different important themes to life and where certain signs fall in there as a relation to your birth will give you some indication of how your life is going to play out in this particular manner. There are 12 houses. The first house represents the body and spirit. The second, livelihood and possessions. The third, siblings. The fourth, parents. The fifth, children. The sixth, sickness and injury. The seventh, marriage and the spouse. eighth, death and inheritance. Nine, divination. Ten, action and reputation. Eleven, friends and gifts. And twelve, suffering and weakness. Now, they are not the only thing that these twelves can represent. It is a obviously a massive topic. They can represent a lot of other things as well. And again, a bit like if you know anything about tarot, it's not as cut and dried as... You'd think it is, it's all a matter of interpretation, but it's supposed to sort of give more of a framework of guidance and really set down this system of how this specific relationship of the stars will bear out upon your life according to your date of birth. So something I'm not going to touch upon too much because I need to really stay in a lane when it comes to this is that another form of astrology, which I mentioned earlier on, Indian astrology, was around and absolutely flourishing but there is evidence that some of the books on Hellenistic astrology made it to India and merged with the existing forms of Indian astrology and then were picked up and flourished in India so it's a very interesting relationship in that wherever these things overlap they seem to flourish they seem to take on and absorb all the existing ideas and run with them which is um quite nice quite interesting (laughs) The 6th century CE sees the fall of Egypt to the Islamic Empire, and the 7th century CE sees the end of Hellenistic astrology, a decrease in learning and literacy, and the beginning of the tension between astrology and Christianity in Western astrology. And this is due to something I touched on very briefly this tension between Christianity and its focus on free will and the importance of the the individual to make the right choices rather than just to end up doing the right things, versus astrology with its reliance of fate and the idea that it's all kind of laid out for you. This is a tension that will never really be realised as you'll see now, but still let's move on. So the 8th and 9th century saw works of earlier Hellenistic traditions translated into Arabic. And out of these, we get texts on horary astrology, which is one I haven't mentioned now. But this is based on asking questions and drawing up a chart on the exact time that that question is asked and drawing conclusions from that. This idea that this chart will give you some kind of answer or insight on your question or why you asked the question. Electional astrology also came about at this time. It was used during the founding of Baghdad to choose an auspicious time to found the city. Electional astrology was used to choose the best time to take on a new venture in order to have the best outcome. So you imagine electional, it would be you know, the best time to hold an election, for example, to have a favorable outcome for you. That's the four types of astrology now outlined. They weren't all equally popular and they don't all stay equally popular but as you can see there's a lot of overlap between them but it just shows that there are many ways in which astrology was being used at this time so it's been used at sort of the governmental level even right down to the individual and down to individual questions so individual individual tasks even you could use this to get an answer specifically tailored to the question you're asking now which is very interesting so right the way down even past the individual so as mentioned at this point, we have got Hellenist traditions translated into Arabic. And then in medieval times, there's a really, there's a big push to translate these Arabic texts back into either Latin or English. So one of these texts, which is one that I came across and i super interested in, is the Picatrix, which is a magical as a guidebook really designed for not the individual but someone who's practicing magic so he's practicing all of these sort of applications we're talking about so like alchemy astronomy astrology so the foreword to the picadrix which again is a latin translation from an arabic text of unknown origin the modern foreword to it notes that the astrology in its pages is not the astrology that we recognize the text was written for magicians not the layman and it stressed The years of study that was a prerequisite for practicing medieval astrology or medieval magic in general. In late medieval astrology, Europeans were reconquering land and getting a hold of this big library of Arabic texts and the resulting movement to translate them to Latin, which was sort of the scholarly language of the time. But there was a revival of astrology at this time in 12th century CE. So it was reintroducing Western astrology from Arabic and Sanskrit sources. And at this time, it was a very scholarly endeavor. There were universities set up with a head of astrology, for example. And not only was there a revival of interest in astrology, but it It went alongside the evolution of contemporary medicine of this time. So for diagnostic reasons, things like horary and natal astrology were used to figure out if someone was more likely to suffer from a certain disease. Or horary astrology was used to ask about a specific treatment or a question about why they'd become ill. Temperament theory was evolving alongside astrology and medicine in this very interesting way now in 1440 there was of course the invention of the printing press and all that came with it so there were printed copies of all of the latin translation of astrological texts there was a revival of interest in hermeticism So for a couple of hundred years, there was a really scholarly interest in astrology as a subject. It was also the start of this delineation between astronomy and astrology that we have today. But this time, there wasn't really a, a value attributed to that. There was just a branching off between the two. So, I'm going to very briefly talk about some important sort of late traditional astrology events. In 1647, William Lilly wrote Christian Astrology, which was the first intellectual astrological work written in English, not Latin. So, it was the first one sort of written in the language of the people, you could say. And so, it was the beginning of this sort of democratization of astrology. It emphasized Horrory astrology as well and it drew in almost the entire astrological theory to make his version lily drew on a lot of previous texts um, particularly ptolemy who was a hellenistic astrologer he was preferred as like today there was a real tendency to treat the oldest surviving work that you can find as the most authoritative work whether that was true or not and the funny thing is, Ptolemy was, the astrology that he was practicing was a conglomeration of Babylonian and Mesopotamian astrology mixed with Egyptian astrology and possibly even Indian astrology that sort of cross-pollinated. So the astrology he was practicing, it's hard to say that it was like the most pure which I think people tend to assume like the oldest text would be the most pure form of astrology. It wasn't the most pure in that it had been affected by many other different forms of astrology, but it probably was the most authentic as we know it now, because astrology is just a real collage of different disciplines sort of put together. You may think that. Coming up to this point, well, astrology has kind of always been treated with some sort of respect. As we said, there's a bit of a tension between astrology and Christian themes, but it seems at this point that people are kind of always talking about it. It's got a long history that's constantly evolving. However, it was, of course, about to come up to one of its biggest challenges, which was 17th to 19th century focus on the scientific method. And this is before the sort of 1850s and rise of the spiritualist movement, which picked it back up again. But just before this point, major scientific texts were being challenged. For example, Ptolemy, as we were talking about earlier, who was previously held up as one of the most important figures in astrology kind of sewed the scenes for his own doom at this point in that he tried to contextualize it as a causal relationship as we've been sort of saying from the babylonian tradition he tried to conceptualize it as specific, like totally just causal the effects of the stars worked on the body like the moon works on the tides and how the seasons affected the weather for example however the way he contextualized it place the Earth at the centre of the cosmos. And of course, at this time, this was being challenged. This idea of the Earth being the centre of the known universe was being challenged. We know this to be false. And this just threw questions at his model in general. He was thinking, if this very important root thing is wrong, then what's to say any of the rest of it is correct? If it's supposed to be purely scientific, if we find the science of the root is incorrect... What does that say about the discipline itself? As we mentioned, this sort of scientific method of attacking older texts did work in some ways, but it sort of just pushed them over into the realm of paranormal or, you know, extra scientific things outside of the norm. It sort of pushed them over into the pseudoscience realm, whether good or bad. It sort of pushed them over into their own classification. As we said, in the 1850s, there was an absolute explosion of interdisciplinary paranormal and occult themes and learning so there's a real interest in new age ideas and the association with topics like karma and reincarnation and a couple of decades later we start to see the first astrological columns in the papers with your forecasts your sun sign forecasts we start to see these And as they're birthed out of the sort of paranormal, occult side of things, their focus is really character-focused. They're focused on the individual, the individual's feelings, less on the scientific side of things. But it also, in sort of early, like, 1930s, started to incorporate some contemporary ideas from psychoanalysis. So it was drawing in modern science as it went along. Now, Jungian psychoanalysis obviously has a big overlap between what we now call science and pseudoscience. So it's very interesting that it's sort of towing this line between the two. But nonetheless, it is adapting to the contemporary need. People aren't going to be reading a column in the paper need to know about whether it's a good time for the king to try and conquer new colonies. They're not really going to be trying to find out when's the best time to plant their crops. Because this kind of information is is known, we can look this up in like a farmer's armagnac, we know when's the best time to plant specific crops. So therefore they're not trying to find information about the universe in that way, they're trying to find information about their own Personal universe and how their life is playing out and what they should and shouldn't do. But as mentioned, it was a sort of paranormal occult craze. It was hugely popular, um, massively popular. It was like the real séance craze of people doing séances, basically rich people doing séances in their in their living rooms for fun. Massively popular, but still not really treated as a mainstream thing. However, in the nineteen sixties and seventies, astrology became popular and mainstream for the first time in several centuries. I am a child of the 90s, my parents from the 60s and 70s. This mainstream idea of astrology filtered down and it stayed really quite relevant up until this day, I would say. So things that allowed this, things that really laid the foundation for this was, as mentioned, the rise of computers and the internet allowing Not only the quick calculation of charts, but the sharing of interpretations of charts. It allowed you to cut out all of the necessary astronomical theory, knowledge, and all the sort of astrological reference texts that you would need up until this point to get the calculations right. Only after the 70s that people were able to access their birth charts with any accuracy without having to put in... A lot of time and a lot of study to get it right. Like the maths is fairly simple, but you have to know how to apply the maths. You have to know the process, and you're gonna need to find this information from someone or from somewhere. Whereas in the 60s and 70s, or well, 70s particularly, you start to see you don't really need to know this this theory to get your birth chart. You can get your chart and then you can start analysing it straight away. So at this point, anyone can calculate their charts. Nowadays, I say the barrier to entry for accessing your natal birth chart is basically none. Anyone can draw up their natal birth chart today. And the only thing you have to put in, the only time you have to put in is optionally analysing it because there are many sites that will also analyse it for you. That being said, still... It stays fairly true to its roots in that this will just give you a lot of information. As mentioned, some of it is vague, some of it is very specific, but there is still a need to analyse it yourself. So in many ways, the astrological theory and application hasn't changed that much. As we mentioned, it's sort of abstracted away from the, the maths and the calculations. You don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to have this detailed knowledge of astronomy to... Practice astrology anymore. And it has sort of changed its focus a little bit down. So, what started off as a very organized system by which priests would commune with gods and translate messages from God to them, I'd say the focus has shifted away from God. I mean, we'll talk about this further in the future, but I think astrology as it exists now is spiritual but I would say less of a focus on organized religion. But I'm happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> anyway, that was a very brief overview of the history of Western astrology, just so that it gives us enough talking points to sort of continue the discussion onwards. I didn't want to go into too much depth, as I mentioned, I'm just going to be retreading work from other people. If you really want this in depth, I, again, I would t- Go listen to Chris Brennan's excellent overview of the topic because he knows this topic inside and out. I just wanted to get a sort of baseline of knowledge so that I can continue the conversation about this. Because honestly, I had no idea that it had such a long history. (laughs) I don't know if I'm just... It's not really anything I thought about before. I knew it was... It had a real upswing in popularity in the 60s and 70s sort of going along with hippie ideas and a real interest in the new age I knew that but I wasn't sure of how much of a real history it had and how scholarly the topic was treated up until this point so I think it's very interesting and I'm I'd really like to think about where we think astrology might take us because as we've mentioned the sort of methodology hasn't changed that much but the focus has and as with everything, everything that involves humans, I say this every week, it says something about the needs of the people at that time and the sort of specific social world they're growing up into. So I think it'd be very interesting to try and think about where astrology is going to go in the future and some evidence for this. And I'm going to learn a little bit more about specifically modern astrology and the people who are practicing it but that was a very brief rundown of the history of this point so just giving us sort of beat for beat how we got to where we were and the influences i'll continue this discussion as it's very very interesting to me if you want to interact with me up between uploads find me on twitter as weird horizon And I'm also on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. And I would love to see you there. And I'd love to hear from some astrologers out there. I really want to learn about this. I think it's very interesting. But I'll see you all soon. Much love. Bye.